Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I do films of the 80s, 90s, the aughts, all the way up to today, and even classic films from Hollywood era as well. Quipster.net is where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today I'm going to be getting into a film that, I guess, in some parts of the world was released in 1985, released in 1986, it got delayed a few times in the United States. It's a fantasy adventure film, the third film that I'm going to be covering for this particular trilogy of movies that include the last of a certain kind in a fantasy film from the 1980s. And like the last film I did, which was The Last Unicorn, this film also features a final unicorn. I'm talking about Ridley Scott's Legend. It's a PG-rated film. It does have fantasy violence and some scary moments. I'd probably rate it PG-13. There's some torture in this here, and some of the characters might be a little bit unnerving for younger viewers. The runtime, well, it really depends on which version of the film you watch. The theatrical version in the United States was 89 minutes. In Europe, it was 94 minutes. Some other cuts over the years have run a little bit longer. The director's cut is an hour and 53 minutes, but suffice it to say, it's usually between an hour and a half and two hours. The stars are Tom Cruise, an early film from Tom Cruise, pre-Top Gun. Mia Sara, who would go on to play in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, gets her debut of sorts here. Tim Curry is also in this movie, though you probably wouldn't know that unless you saw the opening credits. David Bennett, Billy Barty, and even Robert Picardo plays a role in here, unrecognizable as Tim Curry. The director here is Ridley Scott, yes, the director of Alien and Blade Runner coming into this film, so a hot commodity. William Hjortsberg is credited as the screenwriter. Now, Ridley Scott here is taking the director's chair, even though he had a lot of conceptual ideas for where the story should go along the way. He's really crafted a visually arresting fairy tale. It's kind of a Victorian style of fairy tale. And he states he made this film. Initially, it was going to be a more adult version of a fairy tale. But then he decided he's going to make it for children, much like his children, who really like their fairy tales as told in the classic Disney animation films that they grew up on. Indeed, you can see and hear evidence of the Disney cartoon-like quality of legend within the character designs and some of their posturing. Some aspects of this film evoke the likes of Disney films like Peter Pan and The Jungle Book and Sleeping Beauty, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs especially, Cinderella, Fantasia, Bambi, you name it. It's probably got a prominent place somewhere in here. There are many other fairy tales of the 20th century tradition that get a little bit of a nod, including Jean Cocteau's take on Beauty and the Beast. And the plot itself kind of combines with the story that you find in the Bible, in in Genesis specifically, the fall of man story, Adam and Eve and whatnot. But getting back to the cartoons, it's especially evident in the quality and texture of the voice work where you find a lot of the cartoonish aspects of the movie. There's even a musical interlude at some point in this film, depending on which version, I guess, you watch. The setting of Legend is a mythical place and mythical time. That's fairly common within Enchanted Tales of Fantasy. There's a pleasantly wooded patch of sunlit paradise that's filled with fairies and nymphs and unicorns. And unicorns that somehow communicate to each other as if they're using the voice of humpback whales. You'll have to see the movie to really understand that. And there's a pure-of-heart princess named Lily. Paradise turns into a hoary place of cold and bleakness when the demonic Lord of Darkness, who's played by Tim Curry, he resides in this vast underground tree or cave or something. I don't know exactly how to describe it, but he unleashes this wicked plot to bring his brand of evil to the surface for all time. He's hoping to block out the light-giving sun and make it a world of darkness forever. 
There are mischievous evil minions that do a lot of darkness's dirty work. They're on a mission to stamp out the purest goodness in the land by returning the horns of the remaining unicorns that are said to be the one thing that really keeps the pure of heart from becoming enveloped by that internal darkness. So it's up to some of the creatures of the land, including the brave peasant named Jack, or Jack of the Green, who is a man who's smitten by a lily to save the day, literally save the day, from complete and eternal darkness. One of the things that you'll remember coming out of this film, if you remember anything at all, is the visual look of the movie. On board for the visual effects is Rob Botton, who came to prominence doing makeup work for John Carpenter's The Thing. He would go on to do bigger budgeted films later in the 1980s, including such films as Inner Space and Robocop and Total Recall. Botton would be noticed for his work in makeup in this film. Along with makeup supervisor Peter Rob King, he would go on to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Makeup of that year. Legend, as a film, it manages to be more interesting when the scenery-chewing Tim Curry takes center stage. He's under a lot of makeup. He has some prosthetics on him as well. Giant bullhorns. He gets in front of the camera and he plays a very charismatic, strangely hunky version of a demon. He's painted deep red, as I mentioned, those bullhorns, and coming off of an episode in which I just reviewed a film about The Last Unicorn, in which the unicorn takes on a red bull. This is another film that has a red bull as the bad guy who's going to stamp out the unicorns, except here he's in a more human form. In contrast to most of the other characters in this film, Darkness has a more discernible personality. He has an intelligibility. A lot of the other characters, I could barely tell what they were saying. And he's still intelligible, even though Tim Curry's voice is delivered and is deeply altered as very deep and resonant and almost electronic. He kind of reminded me of Kylo Ren when he had his helmet on during The Force Awakens. And, and his look and his demeanor really does evoke that cartoon-like quality I was talking about. Now, those who've ever gone into Legend because Tom Cruise became a major star sometime later and were looking at this and wanting to see a Tom Cruise vehicle, those people, I think, are going to be the most disappointed in Legend because he's definitely different here from a lot of the personality and the persona that he would adopt later that attracted a lot of people to a Tom Cruise film. He has ample screen time, for sure. But because this came out before Top Gun solidified him as a star, even though he was hot off of Risky Business, it really doesn't utilize Tom Cruise's unique charisma and his screen presence in a way that most of his later films had been built to foster and really built around his personality. He's squatting throughout most of this film. Maybe he's squatting because he wants to show his own self-image regarding his lowly social status as a peasant. Yet his squatting becomes so ostentatious in its pervasiveness to the acting performance that Cruz is delivering. It becomes yet another instance where style within this film creates a distraction from its story. It should be noted that Tom Cruise himself eventually grew disgruntled at the short shrift that was given to his role in this film. He wanted to do a lot more than what really Scott would allow him to do, to the point where upon its release into theaters, Tom Cruise really did nothing to help promote the film, and he especially hated a lot of the cuts that were made to the film on top of it, so he really was not promoting this version of the film anyway. Mia Sarah, in contrast, is very nicely cast as the fair maiden in her first big role. It utilizes her purity and her innocence. I think she was around 16 when this film was made. Even if her role is a little bit underdefined for kind of a semi-starring performance, as well as the importance for her role to the overall story, I do think she does deliver nicely. And she ends up having to show a little bit more nuance toward the end of the film in which she is conflicted between good and evil. 
Robert Picardo fans who I know are always interested in checking out his work, I think they're going to get a kick knowing that he plays perhaps the most unnerving character in this film, one called Meg Mucklebones, who's this slimy, decrepit witch, I guess, that resides in the murky swamp. He's completely unrecognizable under all the makeup and prosthetics, so I don't think that you're going to know that it's him, but it is definitely a memorable performance above that. Although I do think that Legend is generally praised for the aforementioned sense of style. The cinematography is coated with a perpetual visual noise that happens in every frame. You got moats, you got pollen floating around throughout the forest paradise throughout. There's a snowy overlay as the entire land gets overtaken by snow somehow. It doesn't seem very cold at all despite all of that snow. We get sparkly fairy dust that's blown hither and thither and floating bubbles and glitter peppered skin and beaming armor and weaponry and a blizzard of flower petals floating down from the trees and raging fires within the foundry that is darkness's lair there's a, definitely a very concerted effort to always keep your eyes dazzling with something that's flickering either in the foreground or in the background once you notice these things you won't be able to stop noticing them because it comes on so thick so often it begins to encroach upon satire in a certain way maybe that's the point the story wasn't really working so why not overload the eyes of the audience with a lot of things to keep their eyes flitting and their mind titillated with all of these visuals it's hard to believe that the screenplay from novelist william Hjortsberg is difficult to believe that the screenplay would have gone through about 15 script revisions over the course of three years because it feels vastly more underdeveloped as a story when you compare it to the amount of energy and care that surely went into the set and the costume designs and that makeup I mentioned earlier. The reason why there are so many versions of this film, the test screenings for audiences in the 1980s saw a considerably edited version of Scott's vision hit the theaters because the powers that be at MCA Universal Pictures were concerned that the audience in those test screenings were not really feeling the film. In fact, they actually kind of found it laughable. They were concerned that the film was a little bit overly long compared to its story. I mean, Scott's original cut ran over two hours, in fact, up to two and a half hours, depending on which version, the work print, certainly. And then he ended up chopping it down to about 113 minutes, which forms the basis of the director's cut somewhat. And then audiences still weren't feeling it, so they ended up chopping it down to 98 and 94 minutes. And then the people in charge of music at MCA thought they should get rid of the classical score that was put in here by Jerry Goldsmith, put in a more modern score that's going to appeal to more soundtrack buying teens. That's kind of the norm at the time in the mid 80s. They really they really separated themselves from those classical sounds to put in more modern takes. So something that's closer to the originally intended cut is now available on home video that brings back that original Jerry Goldsmith score. Because in the United States, the Goldsmith score was completely replaced with this atmospheric synthesized sound that was provided by the group Tangerine Dream. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because Tangerine Dream is the group that composed the music for another Tom Cruise film just before the aforementioned Risky Business. And they ended up having to, in a rush, make a workable score for this film. I think they did it in about three weeks. And there is a great debate as to which score people like better, whether Tangerine Dream or Jerry Goldsmith. I think Goldsmith ended up winning out over time because the Tangerine Dream score does have that dated quality to it. Now, to date, there are at least five versions of this film, as I mentioned, not counting the original work print or whatever you might find in bootleg form floating around. There's that 89-minute U.S. theatrical release, the 94-minute theatrical cut that was released in Europe that has the 
Goldsmith score. There's one that was released for Japan. There was another one that they re-edited in order to have on uh, TV showings, including Universal's own movie channel. I guess the most popular go-to film now would be the director's cut, which is the cut I'm actually reviewing here in my rewatch. When I first saw this back on cable in the late 1980s, I saw the theatrical release. So I've seen both of those versions. I don't remember the original as well. So the director's cut is the way to go, I think, for most audiences today. All of these cuts really speak to the difficulties of the production as a lot of that wrangling occurred in order to make sure that audiences at the time could be given a release that they would enjoy the most. Although there's generally a feeling that legend is a more style over substance indulgence, there are some arresting moments that are emphasized within that style that I think people find really appealing. Perhaps the most striking is a fairy dance that occurs between Lily and a faceless sorceress turned seductress. Maybe it's even an emanation that stems from darkness. I can't really tell. But there's a figure that matches Lily and they start dancing and the two become one eventually. In modern terms, it feels very much like a a scene from a movie that I actually saw this year in 2018 called Annihilation. It has a very similar scene toward the end of the film there. I wonder if it was an homage. So as far as the film goes, if you are really interested in sumptuous style, a lot of that eye-popping imagery, is if that's something that really attracts you to films of fantasy, especially in the 1980s, I think you're going to get a lot of mileage in Legend to find it a satisfying experience. However, if you're going into this film looking for a really gripping story or interesting characters or great performances per se, I think you're going to come away disappointed in Legend because it really is slim pickings when it comes to that kind of material. And I would just emphasize this point that the visuals really do make this film because I mean, if you take other fairy tales, whether it's Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, etc., you could tell that tale in a movie form. You could tell it in the form of a play, a theatrical play. You could tell it in a book form or short story. All of the stories would still work because those are good stories. But the tale that's told in legend is so scant and kind of generic when compared to a lot of other stories. I mean, you can really find elements in all of these stories. If it wasn't for those visuals that you get in this film, the story would not work nearly as well. It's just not that interesting. These characters are not interesting, nor are their backgrounds or what happens to them in the story. So I personally was not as connected as other people seem to be when it comes to this movie. There are people that are very passionate about their love for legend. It's generally considered a misfire at the time. Critics still have not come around to it even though it does have a following so i guess what i'm saying is that there is an audience for this but it's also one of those films i mean you got ridley scott you got tom cruise you have a really good sense of style here there's great costume work the makeup the lighting the sparklies everywhere i mean all of that stuff is appealing except it's a lot of bells and whistles that are trying to build around a compelling story to inject all of those things into but the story really doesn't make you care as much about how it's ultimately going to resolve And because of that, I feel it's a failure as a fairy tale that's worth relating in any form beyond just witnessing the moody imagery that's on display. I mean, this film really runs the gamut in terms of how people react to it, but I think by and large, critics generally have gotten it right. It's a movie that kind of works on a certain level, so definitely has an appeal, but I think by and large, it's not something that's easily recommendable to most people. It's a colorful misfire in Ridley Scott's early filmography. For me, the problems that the characters and their plights are not nearly as interesting to observe as what's unceasingly diverting to your eye. I know that a lot of people are probably listening to this particular episode of my podcast because they're a huge fan of Legend and they want to reminisce about that film and hear about how great it is. And I'm sorry I didn't provide that for you, but nevertheless, I do think it was worth revisiting for a lot of reasons. And all in all, I think I'm going to give this film two stars out of four, and that seems probably pretty low, I think, for a lot of people. But two stars on my scale means that 
that in my estimation it's lacking something really vital that makes it a recommendable movie and that thing that it's really lacking is the whole core of the story the through line that gets you from one place to another and make you really compelled by what's going on I watch this movie and I'm completely unmoved by almost all of it. I just find it visually interesting. And that's the best thing that I can say about this movie. I don't care how beautiful and ostentatious your style is. I'm only compelled by movies for this length of time if you're going to give me something else to follow along with that. Some people think that the director's cut is so much better. I don't remember the theatrical cut enough to be able to compare the two, but based on my feeling here, it really is consistent with how I felt about it before. Whether it's a Jerry Goldsmith score, Tangerine Dream, or it's got the extra scenes put back in here, it didn't matter to me in the long run. The weaknesses were still the same for me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the review. If you didn't enjoy the review, at least I hope that you felt that I'm being fair to the movie, even if you feel ultimately my opinion is wrong. If you do like my takes and you want to hear more from the films of the 1980s, I encourage you to click the subscribe button because I'm going to deliver this on a weekly basis from here on out. I also want to remind you that I do films that are currently out in theaters and on Netflix right now. You can go to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. That's Quipster spelled with a W. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R, the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Just search for it wherever you found this particular podcast and you'll find it. As far as what I'm going to be playing next week, because I know a lot of you like to watch the movies before I get to them, I'm going to be changing directions a little bit. I'm still going to be in the realm of fantasy films, but they're going to be a little bit more modern day. So they're basically going to be a trilogy of films set in the modern day in which there's a human character that falls in love with a character of fantasy And I'm going to be starting it off with a film that was much maligned at the time of its release back in 1980, but has garnered a following of its own, much like Legend. And that is the musical from 1980 called Xanadu. Yes, the film featuring Olivia Newton-John on roller skates and Gene Kelly in his final performance. I have a lot to say about that film, and I do encourage everybody to check that out before I get into my review next week. It's certainly a unique experience. It's still a very entertaining movie, whether you're having fun with it or having fun making fun of it. And not to tell you too much about how I feel about that film, I've watched that movie almost as much as any other movie I've seen in my life. So (laughs) I am kind of a fan of it in a certain regard, but I'll try to be fair about that film as well. And that'll be coming up next week. Until then, thank you everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 